Our Father in heaven, thank you that we can be here together this morning. We come to you in the name of Jesus. In our hand, no price we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. And today I ask you to speak and be heard. Grant us clarity of thought this morning and the ability to discern your beautiful voice. We thank you that you've given to us your word. Let it be alive and powerful now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A little over 15 years ago, my wife and I were wrestling with that decision that you have likely wrestled with, that you have certainly wrestled with if you have children. And that is, what are we going to name our child? Now, we didn't know whether our firstborn would be a boy or a girl. We chose not to find out. And so, as far as naming her, if she was a girl, there was no question. I had decided what my daughter would be named years before I was married. Now, there was a discussion. I put forward the name I had chosen. Melissa put forward the name she had chosen. Mine was better. And so we went with mine. It's just as simple as that. But we didn't know first time around whether we'd have a girl or a boy. So what if it was a boy? Well, there are seven children in my family. I have six brothers and sisters. The oldest is Paul. Paul, then Jacqueline, Jackie, and then Wayne, and then Leslie, my sister, and then David, and then Greg, and then there was a very, very good chance I was going to be named Vanilla by my family. A very good chance. So it's seven names like that in my family, and Melissa is one of three sisters, and they have perfectly ordinary names. There was no way our child, whether he was a boy or a girl, was going to be named anything exotic or anything really very different or anything original, no way. So we talked about Michael. Michael, that's a good name. We thought we might name him Michael. I like that name. Very popular though, but that's okay. We thought maybe Stephen. Stephen's a very good name. You see where I'm going with these names. Very standard, stock standard, but solid, solid. We thought about Nicholas. Now, it transpired that my son's middle name was Nicholas because right at about that time, we met a whole lot of bratty little Nicholases. And so there was no way he could be Nicholas. Still a great name. It's his middle name. But we couldn't call him Nicholas. Just the, the, the correlations were just not working for us. Maybe David, but we have a, I mean, there are Davids. If you fall over at our family reunion, you may land on a David. And so we couldn't call him David, even though David's a wonderful name. And so we decided we'd call him Jacob. Jacob, we thought. Jacob, that's a good name. And, I said, it has the added advantage of the fact that there are very few Jacobs. I had never met a boy, yea, verily, even a man, named Jacob. I'd met some fellows 
whose last name was Jacob's, but I'd never met a Jacob. And so I thought, how about that? We'll call him Jacob. Well, of course, you, you do know what happened. The year my son was born, he was a Y2 kid. That year, Jacob went to number one in the charts. And we'd go to the park or wherever, and we'd call out, Jacob! And seven children would come running towards us, two of them girls. They'd just come running towards us like that. Jacob's everywhere. But that was okay. We liked the name, loved the name. But you know that that name Jacob has an interesting connotation. And that is that the original Jacob, that biblical Jacob, was named Jacob because of really a defect in his character. That name Jacob means a supplanter, one who gets what he gets by devious means. How do we explain that to my son? We told him that Jacob means good boy who puts his toys away. That's what we told him. And when he found out that that wasn't actually so, just last week, he was really rather surprised. Jacob, a supplanter. What do we do about that? I didn't really want to name my son cheater, fraudster. I wrestled with that. And then I realized that, of course, we're all Jacob. We all are. We all are. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then for any of us to get from here to there, we must, like the original Jacob, wrestle with God and say to God, I will not let you go except you bless me. We all must go from Jacob to Israel if we're going to go from here to there. I thought that's perfectly fitting then. And so he was Jacob the supplanter, but the one who became Israel. My daughter, Shannon, was named after a river. Her great-grandmother, my grandmother, was born on the banks of the river Shannon in Ireland. And so she was Shannon. She's just really glad my grandmother wasn't born on the banks of the Mississippi. My wife's name, Melissa, means honeybee, which is sweet. And my name, I was happy to learn years ago. My name, John, means God is gracious. God is gracious. And so I have often had the opportunity and taken the opportunity to reflect on this idea that God is gracious. But of course, then you come down to this question, and that question, this question is, what is grace? You and I both know that if we polled most Christians, the predominating answer that would come back, if we, had a, if we had a debate and we put 10 candidates on stage and asked them to describe for us what grace is, most of them would say, first up, grace is what? Unmerited favor. Anything wrong with that? Not, not re well. It's a good definition. It's good. It cannot be wrong. Anything God does for us is unmerited. We cannot earn it. We will never deserve it. God will never give it to us uh, as our wages. No way. So anything, anything is unmerited. Everything. And then at the same time, everything God does on our behalf is a manifestation of His favor. Everything. If you are blessed with good health, that's God's favor. If you are blessed with ill health, let's be honest, that's God's favor too because the worst of circumstances are nothing less than God's chosen workmen 
given to us to refine us or bless us or in us demonstrate the grace and the glory and the goodness of God. Isn't that true? That's true. Whether we feel like admitting it or not, if we're up or down, in or out, popular or unpopular, if we are faithful to God, everything taking place in our life is a manifestation of His favor. Unmerited favor. Yeah, that's okay. But it seems to me that it doesn't quite go far enough. As I look at the Bible and the, the way the Bible uses the word grace many times, unmerited favor, and we both know that that term unmerited favor lends itself to being misused. For in the eyes of many, God's grace is nothing other than God's permissiveness. God's grace is God's license. I'm not accusing anybody here of uh, laboring under that misunderstanding. But we both know that for many, grace is, grace is some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, you could say, but John, it is. But we both know that really it isn't. What's grace, really? What, how can we define this? And you know why I think it's germane to our subject this week, to our theme this week? If we're going to lift him up, we ought to know something about the him that we're lifting up. Who is this him? If we are saved by grace through faith, and if we're lifting up the Savior, what kind of grace are we lifting up? And that directly impacts this understanding of what kind of Savior we might be lifting up. Now, I stumbled across a definition of grace, and I'm going to share it with you. I don't know where I found this definition. I don't. I really should Google it. I'm sure I would find it. I, I do not believe this was written by an inspired writer, but I think the definition is inspiring. Listen to this, grace. The merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. No, no, that's a little bit unwieldy. If someone says, hey, what's grace? You can hardly trot that out. But what this definition tells us is that grace is a manifestation of the kindness of God which working upon us draws us to Christ, keeps us in Christ, grows us in Christ in preparation to meet Christ. Grace is the power of God working in our lives to draw us to Jesus and make us more like Him. Grace. Compare that with unmerited favor. And now you have cotton candy compared to whole wheat bread. Grace. The power of God at work in your life. Of course it is unmerited. And certainly, it is favor, grace. I had the good fortune a little while ago, not that long, to film an It Is Written television program on the life and ministry and death of the great German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, when I say great, I don't mean perfect. I don't mean that. After all, Bonhoeffer was sentenced to death for his part in a plot 
to assassinate Hitler. Now, there's a moral ethical question for you to wrestle with yourself. I'm not suggesting that all of Bonhoeffer's theology was perfect, and I'm not suggesting that about myself. But Bonhoeffer was a great man of God, and he wrote a, a, a magnificent book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he discussed grace. Now, leading up to the writing of this book, Bonhoeffer had spent some time in New York City. He had sat at the feet of a minister named Dr. or the Reverend, the Reverend Dr. Adam Clayton Powell, who pastored at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem in New York City. And listening to Powell, Bonhoeffer came away with a concept, an idea, a phrase, and that phrase was cheap grace. Powell preached about this, you understand, and Bonhoeffer seized on that and spoke about that, wrote about that. And when he wrote about cheap grace, this is some of what he had to say. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus living and incarnate. He wrote about cheap grace. Now, he wrote about costly grace as well. When World War II broke out, Bonhoeffer was not in Germany. He was outside of the country. He was safe. No matter what happened in Germany, Bonhoeffer would be okay. And after World War II, Bonhoeffer's ministry could go on. But that was not Bonhoeffer. Responding to the call of his friend Karl Barth, Bonhoeffer returned to Germany knowing full well that he would oppose Hitler and knowing full well that this opposition would more than likely lead to his death. We went to the Flossenburg concentration camp where Bonhoeffer was executed. We saw that little mound, a pyramidal-shaped mound, now covered with grass, actually composed of ash and bone. That's where Bonhoeffer is now. We saw that. Bonhoeffer's understanding of grace led him to what essentially was a martyr's death. Here's what he wrote about costly grace. Costly grace, he wrote, confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Where do we find grace in the Bible? Well, we find it everywhere. But where can this morning we focus in on grace to see it powerfully, to see what costly grace does, and perhaps to catch a glimpse of cheap grace? Well, what we'll do is look at two case studies, and we shall compare them. And by contrast, I believe we will gain a picture, a good picture, a clear picture of what God's grace is really all about. Now, that having been said, I'd invite you now, please, to turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel and chapter 13. 1 Samuel 
chapter 13, you understand that it was never God's plan for the people to have a king. But they clamored for a king, and God said, ultimately, let them, even against my wishes, have a king. They had a king. The prophet at the time was a man named Samuel. The first king was a fellow named Saul. Saul was a good choice to be king. He had to be, didn't he? He was God's choice. It was a good choice. We cannot say things did not turn out well, so what was God thinking? This was a man who not only looked the part, head and shoulders above the next tallest man in all of Israel, but this was a man who was so close to God at times that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, filled, prophesied. Is Saul also among the prophets, they asked. And early, when Saul did something wonderful to deliver Israel and to win a signal victory, they said, where are those who said, shall Saul be king? Let us kill them. And Saul said, no, you won't. Don't do that. That was gracious. Let there be no bloodshed. Let's show mercy. Let's not go there. Oh, that was kingly. That was rulership. That was leadership right there. Great leadership. But he did not go on as he started, as both you and I know. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 13 that Samuel the prophet said to Saul the king, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Saul's kingship, his crown, was removed and placed upon another, because Saul, as we both know, was a scoundrel king. As you read through the list of kings in Israel, even the queens, if you want to include Athaliah, Israel and Judah. You recognize that there were precious few who stood faithfully for God. There, were, there was an overabundance of those who were opposed to God and led Israel, Judah, in terrible directions. Saul did nothing much to help. We know he was a scoundrel. When we talk about Saul, the scoundrel king, we think of what? Come on now, help me. The witch of Endor. That's what we think about. That's the first thing. The witch of Endor. Saul and the witch of Endor, consulting a spiritist medium, the king of Israel, handpicked by God. No wonder God passed him by. What else do we think of when we think of King Saul? Come on now, there's a lot. He was disobedient, absolutely right. Remember, this was a man who was consumed with jealousy, wasn't he? Now, I mean, if people were singing about you, David, as Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands, well, that would be a temptation. But this was a man who was a king. He was a follower of God. He wasn't to get bogged down in the little stuff, the petty stuff. Yet, that jealousy became blind fury. David would come and play his harp in Saul's presence, and Saul would take his javelin and hurl it at Jacob, attempting to pin him to the wall. David was only fortunate, blessed really, to get out of the way of the javelin by the grace of God. This was a man who hunted David like David was a wild animal. This man... King Saul, King Saul. This was a man who had the priests killed. You remember Doeg the Edomite got in and insinuated himself in that situation because over there the priest or the priests had shown some favor towards David, Saul's enemy. 
And Saul sends somebody down there to kill them all. Kill them all. Forty-two, I think it was, dead priests. King Saul. A scoundrel king. And we think about Saul. You know, I only ever met one boy whose name was Saul. Only one. He went to my school, St. Paul's Catholic Primary School. I don't know what his parents were thinking. Saul. Only Saul I ever met. But I met a lot of Davids. A lot of, we, we could have called our son David. Now David, there was a man after God's own heart. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 13. Samuel, we're going to pass you by. Sorry, not Samuel. Saul, we're going to pass you by. Because God has found a man after his own heart. Now let's look at this in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. From 1 Samuel 13 to Acts chapter 13. Oh, these are wonderful words. These are beautiful words. Acts chapter 13, we'll pick it up in verse 21, uh, 20. Acts 13 and verse 20, where the Bible says, And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. There he goes, David. And when we say David, good King David, what do we think about? Come on now, first thing that comes to our mind is one little stone went up in the air and the giant came tumbling down. Only a boy named David and only a little sling. Good King David, what a man. There he was out in the field minding the sheep. He brings some stuff down there to the scene of the battle. And there's Saul, the coward, the coward king. He's lounging under the shade of a tree. He should have gone out there and killed Goliath, at least taken him on. Now, I'm not saying if I was there, I'd have done it. But if I was there, I'd have told the king he should have done it. That's for sure. That was his job. He should have gone out there in royal dignity and kingly bearing and taken that guy down. No, he wouldn't. But along comes David. Saul says, you can wear my armor. Oh, come on, King Saul. We'll show you how a real man after God's own heart does it. And before long, Goliath was bereft of his sword. He was bereft of his shield. He was bereft of his head. And there stood upon his dead body only a boy named David. The kingdom flourished under David. He was a good king. He was a man after God's own heart. Now, last year, I had the, oh, the blessing of being with my boy, Jacob, in New Zealand. And we went there to visit my mom, and we went there and, and spoke at, a, uh, at, a, at an event, a little event, wonderful gathering, uh, basically in the foothills of the Southern Alps in New Zealand. And that's some beautiful territory, let me tell you. And we were outside on a, being August, being August in New Zealand, in the South Island, this far from the Southern Alps, on a very cold uh, Saturday night. Now, when I say very cold, I don't mean Minnesota very cold. I mean New Zealand very cold. It had to be been about 38 degrees outside. It was brutal. Brutal. Might have got down to 34. Oh, man. So we were standing by the bonfire, and I looked up. Oh, my goodness. I mean, Peter Jackson couldn't have done what we saw in the sky. The stars... No, no pollution. It's New Zealand. No, no light pollution. We were on the side of the Southern Alps. 
And I mean, you could just about reach out and touch them. I wanted to take a scoop and, and, and fill a scoop full of these beautiful stars. Wow. I looked up. I said, wow. An hour later, we were walking back to the lodge. And I looked up again, and I was almost frightened by what I saw. So many stars, more than before, a hundred times more than before. Amazing. We looked up, my boy and I, we looked up, we said, wow. Now, you know that David had done the same thing. Because we read in the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork. David had frequently looked up and said, wow. One night he's walking across the rooftops in Jerusalem. And instead of looking up and saying, wow, he looks down and he says, wow. Now let's be honest here. No sin committed yet. Giving David the benefit of the doubt, I don't know that he went out on a mission that night. The Bible doesn't say he did. So giving him the benefit of the doubt, David's outside meditating. I don't know what he was doing out there. And he walks this away, and he looks down, and my goodness, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. No harm done. I mean, let's just say it wasn't his fault. I don't mean it was her fault. Whatever she was doing, she had a reasonable right to privacy, quite obviously, a right to expect privacy. Now, what David should have done, what he should have done is just backed up. Uh Uh-oh. He should have gone away and, and got that. He should have just started thinking about long multiplication and, and just got his mind right off that. Forgot all about it. Never have let her know that he stumbled into a privacy. He should never. But he didn't. Temptation got the better of him. Now, before we go on, David was a, what, now how does the Bible describe him? Man after God's own heart. That's right. And so lust developed to the place where it was accompanied by deception. It grew into adultery, and it blossomed into murder. Man after God's own heart. By the way, what was the name of David's wife? Can you tell me that? What was her name? Some men collect sports cars. David collected wives. He had a retinue of them. A retinue of them. Man after God's own heart. Now, there was a fascinating episode that took place near the end of his life. David was, well, he was cold. And so somebody came up with the bright idea of calling a young woman and having her climb into bed with David because, after all, that would warm him up. And, of course, you do that all the time, don't you? I was recently... I had a cold or a flu or something like that. I don't, can't remember what it was. And my wife said to Jacob, Jacob, run next door. Get the neighbor's wife. We know how to help dad. <laughs> when I was a boy, we had hot water bottles. Did you ever have a hot water bottle? Hot water bottle. David's wife may have just said, fill a hot water bottle. That, I'm sure it would have done just as well. Now, I'm not suggesting that David got up to any monkey business. Uh, he, was, he was old and sick, and clearly that wasn't the intent. But still, still, that didn't look good, did it? Man after God's own heart. Now, what else? Let's think about good King David. Ah, here's what we'll do. Let us have a graphical representation. Take a pair of scales. 
And on this side of the scales, we'll put Saul's sins. Now, how do we define, uh, describe them earlier? Uh, Witch of Endor, uh, clearly rebelled against God, um, uh, killed some priests. I mean, there, there's some sins in this side of the scales. There really is. Jealous, furious, hunting that man like he was going to kill him. Crazy man. <laughs> but now let's start to put the sins of a man after God's own heart in this side of the scales. Now, what have we got? got lust and adultery and cold-blooded murder and deception. And by the way, there was a child conceived and born. The baby died a week later. David's fault. So let's attribute the death of, a, of, of an infant to David. And then all these wives and the just marital mess. Let's think about good King David, shall we? If you look at the history of his family, his own offspring, you know this was a dysfunctional family. Who gets the credit? David. He was a lousy father. Rebellion sprang up in the heart of Absalom. David wouldn't talk to Absalom. David should have gone to Absalom and said, son, we need to talk. Let's go fishing like we used to when you were a little boy. He should have gone fishing for the weekend and sat on a rock with a rod and a big bag of popcorn and some whatever else. And at some stage, he should have put his hand on his boy's shoulder and said, come on now, let's, let's work this out. But he didn't. This man after God's own heart did not. And his family was a mess. There are other things we could talk about, but let's just hit the high spots, shall we? Let's go towards the end of David's life where David said, let us number Israel. And they said to David, don't do that. And David said, wait a minute, there's only one king in Israel. That's me. You will number Israel. And when they were done, God came to David and he said, you got three choices. What's it going to be? And David said, always better to fall into the hands of a merciful God, which he did. And by the time God was done, 70,000 Jews were dead. There were 70,000 corpses littering the landscape. All of them innocent. It's not that God went to the maximum security prison and found the hardened criminals and said, you'll do. Oh, no. There were young mothers who had been tending to the little ones, and the little one turned around, and mother is dead on the floor. And they say, what in the world? There were men at work. They were old, and they were young. 70,000 of them dead because of David. Let's look at our scales now. I know it's a difficult game to play, but if you were to compare one sin or rather one sinner to another, it seems to me that David makes Saul seem like a choir boy. David was a train wreck at times. He had this tremendously interesting experience of standing on high mountaintops and then plunging into deep valleys. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're thinking the right thing. Now, wait, hold on. When David was doing all of that stuff, he wasn't a man after God's own heart. Oh, I know that. I understand that, and you know that I know that. However, we've got this little issue over here, and that's the book of Acts, written long after the event. Certainly, Paul, who was preaching, and Luke, who was writing, were recapping history. They were recapping history. That's what they were doing, quoting some Scripture here. But Paul, in his sermon in his speech 
didn't need to go there. He could have gone anywhere. But under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he reached back. And he claimed, rightly, that God sought for king, a man after his own heart. He did not say, David, the recovered sinner. He did not say, David, the forgiven man. He did not say, David, the one-time adultering murderer. He didn't say, David, who had some troubles, you know. He didn't say, David, who we remember fondly, but there's this asterisk by his name. He's a bit like Barry Bonds. Great performer, but there'll always be an asterisk. He didn't say that. David, a man after God's own heart. How can that be? Ladies and gentlemen, I believe the answer is written on my birth certificate. John, God is gracious. Now, wait a moment. Was God gracious to David and not to Saul? Oh, no. God was equally gracious to them both. But when God pled with the heart of King Saul, King Saul put his fingers in his ears and refused to listen to God. He had moments where his heart warmed. Oh, David, I'm so sorry. You are far more righteous than I. What was I thinking? Sure, he had those moments of lucidity. But overall, oh, no. David, on the other hand, David, on the other hand, I'd like you to turn with me, please, to Psalm 51, and we will see grace and the effects of grace. Psalm 51, we will begin in verse 1. Psalm 51, verse 1, where David says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Now, it's fascinating, isn't it? This is David's wonderful psalm of repentance, and what we know is that he begins by saying, Have mercy on me. He knew, David knew, that God was merciful. If you look at the story of the prodigal son, which is a great story, and we could talk about that sometime. The prodigal son was there in a pigsty feeding pigs. He had made a fool of himself. He had disgraced the family name, but he said to himself, my father will take me back. He knew that much about his father. God is merciful. He will take me back. David knew, I have sinned. I have, I have bottomed out here. I have done terrible things, but God will take me back. This wasn't presumption either. This was faith. This wasn't a deathbed confession either. This was faith. This was grace in action. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Now you see a little thread run through here that's repeated in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. When I was pastoring in a certain church, a wonderful church. The church was very involved in prison ministry and would minister at a local penitentiary. Now, there were some bad dudes in that penitentiary and some people who'd done some bad stuff. And I'm differentiating between the two. And I visited one of our church members. The church member was on death row. Now, he wasn't a church member when he went to death row, but once he got to death row, certain of the saints ministered to him and he had a conversion experience, and you can be critical of that, and you can be cynical about that if you like, but that's okay. And I went and I spoke to this fellow, one of my church members. Getting to him, I mean, what an ordeal. But we got to him. And as I spoke to him, he said to me, he said, Pastor, I feel terrible. When he said terrible, he meant terrible. He had tears in his eyes. I feel terrible about my crimes which I have committed. 
Now, sometimes you visit a guy in prison or in jail, and it's all about, I was set up, I was framed, it wasn't me, they got it in for me, how could they make this terrible mistake? This is a miscarriage of justice, but not this man. He wrote me a letter in which he said, pray for me, but more importantly, pray for the families of my victims. Repentant. My crime. My victims. My sins. I did that. Saul couldn't come to that place. Saul couldn't say, I'm just a jealous man. Saul couldn't say, I'm I'm filled with fury and rage and I shouldn't be. Saul somehow, for some reason, could not bring himself to the place where he could be small and God could be big. Early, yeah. Later, no. Couldn't do it. David, on the other hand, yes, you know the Spirit of God spoke to them both. And Saul, with his fingers in his ears, was not able to hear, at least would not respond to the pleading of the Holy Spirit. David did. What about you? This is where grace is working. God offers grace. God will have grace. God's grace will work in our lives. David said, I'll have that. And I recognize, one, you are merciful. Two, I am a sinner. I have done wrong. I must be forgiven and cleansed and changed. Verse 3, I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that you might be justified when you speak and clear when you judge. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Listen, friend, this is what grace does. It washes you and it makes you whiter than snow. We read this later, don't we, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins, but it doesn't end there, ladies and gentlemen. And to do what? Cleanse us from how much? All unrighteousness. This is what grace will do in your life. There's not a sinner in the world who needs to carry around a burden. There's not a sinner in the world who needs to cling to guilt. There's not a sinner in the world who needs to be separated from God. You might feel bad about what you've done, and so you should, but you can feel good about the fact that you are forgiven by the grace of God and made a new creature. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, he is a what? New creature. Old things, what's happened to them? Passed away. How many things become new? All things become new. Thank the Lord. Amen. And thank God for grace. Certainly this is unmerited favor. I'm just fattening up the definition a little bit. The power of God at work to make a new creature out of you. The power of God at work so that sin shall not have dominion over you, in the words of St. Paul. The power of God at work to make out of you what you could never make out of yourself. Grace. I want to get down to verse 10. Created me a clean heart, a clean heart, O God, and renew a what kind of spirit? Your Bible might say constant or steadfast. Not just, okay, make me right, good. I I used to go to confession as a child. I'd run in, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been uh, usually only a week since my last confession. Here are my sins. And the priest would say, eventually, ego te absolvo. And he'd give me my penance. Go ahead and say, to our fathers. We never called it the Lord's Prayer. To our fathers and to Hail Marys. And I'd, I'd go and kneel in the back row on the wooden kneeler. You too, right? on the back row, on the wooden kneeler, and I'd rush through my penance. I'd get through it in about 37 seconds. Gone. You can say those prayers really fast when you've been praying them all your life. Boom, out of there. Forgiven, cleansed. Now I'm just back to sin like a 
pig gets back into the strawberries. That's not grace. That would be presumption. And that's not a right spirit. That's a reprieve. But David prayed, God, you've got to give me a constant spirit, a steadfast spirit. Now, we know, and please don't misunderstand this, it wasn't all plain sailing for David from here on out. And you're going to go to God next time, and you're going to say, God, cleanse me, forgive me, thoroughly, wash me, clean. And he does, just like that. For, for when you come to God pleading the merits of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God doesn't give you something uh, on loan. God doesn't give you something that half pie does the job, uh, and we'll talk about this more tomorrow. He gives you the righteousness of God if we are to actually believe what it says in the Bible. It's what we have. It can't get better than that. But, but, but then what happens, speed bumps, man. Maybe they're not even speed bumps. Maybe they're slow bumps. Because like Peter, we take our eyes off Jesus. We find ourselves sinking. Thank God we can cry out in sincerity, Lord, save me. And he will. God is gracious, isn't he? Isn't he? Thank God David could be cleansed from, forgiven for the most wicked of deeds. And even later in his life when he found himself down, he remembers he remembers what's written in the Psalms. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. Praise God today for grace. I need it. You need it. God offers it. He gives it. Saul refused it. David said, I'll have that. And he understood something about the end result of grace. It wasn't so that he could sit fat and happy in the pew and say, look at me. I'm a, I'm a believer. Look at me. I've experienced grace. Oh, no, that wasn't him at all. Move down here. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a constant, steadfast spirit in me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Let's get to verse 13. Here's where grace leads. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to thee. Grace will make a disciple out of me. But further, grace will make me a disciple maker by the grace of Almighty God. This is how David later could be described as a man after God's own heart. You see, you see God doesn't look at you as the reformed adulterer. He doesn't look at you as the forgiven murderer. He doesn't look at you later on as the one who, 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 who messed up parenting or made questionable decisions. God looks at you later on, even now, but God looks at you later on. As you look back over your life together with God, God doesn't see the potholes, and God doesn't talk to you about the stumbles, and He doesn't enumerate the sins. God simply says, forgiven, mine, cleansed, righteous, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Hebrews and he said, let us therefore come boldly to where? To the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. How is it with you today? Is your God a God of grace? Real grace now. Not license, not permissiveness. I don't mean that. Have you met the God of grace and have you experienced His grace? You can. 
You must. Because as it says on my birth certificate, God is gracious. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, our time is up. We thank you today that we have collided with your grace. David, a man after your own heart, in spite of himself. And here are we. Here are we. We look pretty good to each other. But in the privacy of our own reverie, when you search us, O oh God, and know our hearts, we see us as we really are. Like David, we recognize our need of grace, and we ask you for it now, confidently, gratefully, certainly. We are grateful, Lord, that like as a father pities his children, you pity those of us who fear or love and turn towards you. Keep us now. Let this be a day where we live in the atmosphere of your grace. Might we remember always that God is gracious. This we pray with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, let everybody say, Amen and Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.